these members have reached a bipartisan agreement. Somehow, we've reached a point in today's politics where just the word bipartisan itself is enough to prompt surprise or even outright laughter. Did I hear the word bipartisan? <laughs> but take a step away from the nation's capital and you're likely to find plenty of areas where the left and the right are actually finding common ground, especially if you look in the area of criminal justice reform. Take, for example, the left-leaning ACLU. I think people are hungry for examples of government working. And the conservative group, Right on Crime. Here's how conservatives should approach criminal justice different from lock them up and throw away the keys. Two organizations that you probably wouldn't expect to work together on anything. But it turns out both of those groups were absolutely essential in pushing through recently passed legislation known as the First Step Act. The two groups spoke with one another on a regular basis. They spoke with a unified voice to White House Senior Advisor Jared Kushner. And today, they're speaking with us. I'm David Abair, and on this episode of Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, bootleggers and Baptist working together. Exactly how does it work when a left-right coalition is formed, and what can each of us learn from their example? And now, here's Laura Arnold. Hello, and welcome to Deep Dive. I am thrilled to be here today with two outstanding policy leaders who happen to also be good friends of mine and of each other. And of each other. And of each other. Anthony Romero, the executive director of the ACLU, and Mark Levin, vice president of criminal justice policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Mark was one of the main architects of the Right on Crime movement. Mark and Anthony, welcome to Deep Dive. Yeah, thank you. Mark, great to see you. Laura, always great to see you. Well, thank you. And our topic today is what I like to call bootleggers and Baptists. Now, I'm borrowing that phrase. Are you the bootlegger or am I the Baptist? Well, you guys can have a throwdown later on who the bootlegger and who the Baptist is. But I am borrowing that phrase with a bit of artistic license from economist Bruce Yandel, who made the argument that coalitions of opposing interests can be especially successful in policymaking. And, you know, the bootlegger and the Baptist are both in favor of prohibition for very different reasons. The Baptist has a moral imperative and the bootlegger has an economic interest. But they collaborate effectively to further a common goal. And today I'd like to explore one such unlikely coalition, which is a partnership between the two of you, the ACLU and Right on Crime. Now, before we kick off the discussion... Just to level set, I'd love for each of you to say a few words about your respective organizations. Uh, Mark, let's start with you. Well, thank you. Yeah, so in 2005, I was asked by our then president, Brooke Rollins, who's now in the White House, to start Criminal Justice uh, Project for the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is the free market think tank in Texas. We started looking at uh, the system, or I started looking at it and saying, we're spending a fortune building all these prisons and we're not getting a commensurate public safety return for that investment. And obviously, we're also taking away a lot of people's liberty, sometimes unnecessarily. Victims aren't getting restitution. So the system's not really working and we're spending billions of dollars. So we set about looking at what Texas could do differently. And as many of the listeners probably know, in 2007, Texas uh, took a different path. Instead of spending what was projected to be billions of dollars to build 17 
16,000 more prison beds, we invested in alternatives to prison. And we improved treatment programs in prison so people didn't come back and that, so they could be paroled after completing those programs. So long story short, we started to see our incarceration rate falling, crime falling. We've closed eight prisons in Texas, and we got a lot of interest from other states, people saying, could you help us do this in our state? And that led me in 2010 to think of the phrase right on crime. And working with a lot of my colleagues, we launched a campaign with a statement of principle saying, here's how conservatives should approach criminal justice different from lock them up and throw away the keys, but from a standpoint of rehabilitation, redemption, um, and really demanding results and applying the same lens of accountability we would apply to any other government program to the criminal justice system. Anthony, would you say a few words about what, uh, how you would describe the ACLU? So I'm the Baptist to Mark's uh, bootleg. <laughs> but uh, I'm the director of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, 100-year-old organization that's celebrating its centennial this year. You know, founded with a very simple premise that's been daunting over the decades, is to defend the rights of everyone in the United States. And from the very beginning, the organization had a very expansive vision of what that would be. We're best known for our work around the First Amendment, freedom of speech, and freedom of association. But quickly, the organization focused on criminal justice issues. And now it's, it's fair to say that, Anthony, the ACLU is perceived as a left of center organization. Yeah. yeah. And Mark, your organization is perceived to be a right of center or right, depending on uh, on who you ask, either right wing or right of center. And depending on who you ask uh, about wing. the ACLU, either <laughs> left wing or, or, or left of center. But certainly your, your, with respect to criminal justice, it seems to me that your perspectives, Anthony, you come at it from a civil liberties perspective. Right. First and foremost. Right. And, and Mark, your organization comes at the issue from a government accountability uh, efficiency perspective. Is that fair? Well, I mean, I would quibble a little bit just because, I mean, of course, constitutional rights are very important to us. And that comes up in a lot of contexts like forfeiture, right. taking people's mm -hmm. property and uh, putting people in jail because they can't afford bail, even though they're not dangerous. So I do think there's a lot of connection, too, between us on constitutional rights, due process, uh, equal protection under the law. So I think there is commonality there. But you're absolutely true. Kind of why we say the appetizer that gets policymakers to the table on prison reform is we got to balance the budget or we're going to have to build more prisons if we don't do something. Um, but the main course really is public safety, redemption, keeping families together, getting people employed. And very often we coincide with Right on Crime and with Mark's colleagues on using the fiscal arguments. Because for us, ultimately, we, we care about what practically will make a difference. Uh, we're pragmatists. We want to know what moves the needle. In some states, you can talk about how the criminal justice system is the new Jim Crow and talk about the racial disparities in the criminal justice system. And in some states, that, that will, helps galvanize a conversation. In other words, in other states, it's dead on arrival. So then you have to use the efficiency arguments and the libertarian arguments about smaller government is better and that spending less money on criminal justice and more money on, on rehabilitation and diversion programs. So we steal from each other playbooks because we're ultimately on the same team. And I, and I think that's been one of the, the sweet spots of this work is really finding ways of working with uh, the right of center. Right. And criminal justice reform, uh, as you just mentioned, is the one area the one. that we can all point to, at least of late, where we see bipartisan coalitions. And not only do we see coalitions, but we see action right. resulting from these coalitions. In December of 2018, the most uh, recent victory for the criminal justice reform movement was signed into law by President Trump, the First Step Act. Yeah. 
We've seen President Trump tout this as one of his administration's major accomplishments. This landmark legislation will give countless current and former prisoners a second chance at life. On the, you know, on the Democratic side, Cory Booker recently used it as an example of his own progressive bona fides uh, on the Democratic primary stage. As my colleagues in the Senate know, I fought on that bill from the day I got to the Senate. We've seen many reforms at a state level also that are impressive and that are bipartisan. Uh, so we're seeing this throughout the country. Let's start with the First Step Act. Yeah. Uh, which one of you wants to take a stab at summarizing what you was ahead, actually Mark. accomplished? Mark, go ahead. Well, it, it, it was, in fact, a turning of the tide. And there's a lot more to be done in terms of rolling back federal mandatory minimums. But it, the central part of it, which started with the House bill, was to say people should be able to earn time by completing programs tied to reducing recidivism while they're in prison. So give people incentive, just like folks have who are employees uh, when they go to work every day. And um, that proved to be very popular. Unfortunately, not everyone was made eligible for it, but again, more work to do in the future. But then the sentencing reform piece was added uh, in the Senate, which at least rolled back certain things like life in prison sentences for nonviolent offenders. And again, didn't, you know, completely change federal mandatory minimums by any any means, but took the first step as advertised. And, um, you know, one thing that's powerful about this is now everyone's campaigning on it, as you alluded yeah. to. And that's what we've seen. I mean, in Texas, when we started these reforms, once legislators realized they weren't going to lose an election over this, the public is overwhelmingly popular, both with conservative and liberal voters. It really reinforces it. And then they see the results. I mean, crimes down 30 percent in Texas and incarceration rates down 20%. How can you argue with that? Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the process of getting to yes. What was that like? Wrangling behind closed doors? It was like, a lot of wrangling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where where I came in really in a much more direct way was I, I got a phone call in July from the West Wing saying, please come in and meet with Jared Kushner to talk about his version of the bill. And I was glad to do so. It was actually someone from the Koch brothers who asked me to come in, Mark Holden, who's the EVP and a dear friend who said, Mr. Kushner wants to meet with you. I'll be delighted. Went that July. And when I met with Mr. Kushner, he was asking, why are you not supporting my version of this bill? Uh, It's a good bill, he would tell me. I'm like, it's a good bill. It's a little, it's anemic is what I remember telling him at the White House. Well, you uh, characterized it in a letter that you, well, at the ACLU signed by the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights as a, quote, empty promise. It was not so going you were far not, enough. You, 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 were, you were not pleased by, didn't go in far the enough. summit. Yeah. And what I told them was just like, look, we have one bite at the federal apple every 10 years on criminal justice reform. Just having been around this rodeo a couple of times, when if and given the kind of the magnitude of the issue that we're grappling with, uh, Mark and I kind of know all too well, 2.2 million people behind bars. That you, and at the federal level, we could only solve for a small fraction of them. And yet the, the bill that was initially proposed by the, the White House was, was going to deal primarily with prison reform issues and not really get into the sentencing reform issues as vigorously as we wanted. So when I met with Mr. Kushner, I said, look, it's a fine bill, I guess, but it's not ambitious enough. And if Chuck Grassley is willing to go much f- further, why would we settle for an anemic bill? Let's say if we're going to take a bite out of the apple, let's not nibble at the apple. Let's take a big honking bite at the apple. And then Mr. Kushner is very, uh, very direct way. What do you need for you to get in, to get behind it? 
And it was for us, the key thing for us was the retroactivity on the crack powder cocaine sentencing differential. And then to talk a little bit about these mandatory minimum uh, kind of ways that kind of provide safety valves for them and that earned the, the earned time credits. And, you know, I wasn't really optimistic, Laura, that Mr. Kushner would kind of deliver a different version of the bill. I just kind of laid out my top two or three demands and said, look, if you gave me these, then maybe we could talk and we would get behind it. And then sure enough, to his great credit, uh, Jared Kushner then was able to wrangle some folks behind the scenes, especially Mitch McConnell, who was the biggest roadblock to anything happening with the First Step Act. And then when the bill looked like it was really moving forward in a much more vigorous and fulsome way, we got behind it like a freight train. You know, we we struggle with this issue all the time as we think about policy reform. You have a moment where there is bipartisan interest for something. The politicians are, by their nature, hesitant, and they are incremental. So the big, bold idea might not be something that uh, you can get bipartisan support under. So then you have, you, you have this debate whether do you support something that, is, that falls far short of your objective for the sake of moving the issue forward, or do you risk closing the doors for time immemorial because people will say that you already addressed the issue with this incremental thing that falls far short of what you wanted. Was that part of your thinking? Because, I mean, after all... The First Step Act, at its best, affects only a few thousand people yeah. Yeah. of well, the 181,000 people that are in federal custody. Yeah, but I mean, the, the of course, the as you said, the retroactivity on this on the uh, uh, crack powder disparity, and then of course, the we don't know how many people may benefit from the safety valve expansion for drug mandatory minimums. But there are already second step proposals filed. So, right. I mean, what we found in in the state work has been states like Georgia. Almost every session, they came back and passed more, and it was partly because the lawmakers had positive feedback from their constituents and they saw crime was continuing to decline. So now do you think that's going to happen? Yeah. Do you think that that happens at the federal level or do you think the window's closed? I I don't think it is closed. And and I think part of it's also uh, aspects of you know, our society. I mean, look at the opioid epidemic, which is ravishing right. rural areas that obviously are primarily conservative. And I think what Mark is referencing also is the, the impact of if you can show that you can make progress at the federal level, the impact you can then leverage that at the state level to say, look, we can even get this done in this Washington, D.C., with this gridlock, with this acrimony, with the Montagues and the Capulets fighting each other. Right. And- but then the, the counter argument to that is you did this little thing. Well, right. but, and, and everybody's claiming victory, but is it, is it something that, for all practical purposes, is not necessarily inconsequential, but certainly not not significant? Well, it, I think it's significant when you look at the, the fact that we're able to change the, the debate at mm-hmm. the federal level on criminal justice reform. And, you know, there were many, even within the Trump administration, who were hell-bent on, on stopping this reform efforts, including... Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions, right. exactly. So to be able to kind of like, drive this one and make sure that Jeff Sessions didn't stand in the way was critically important. I think, you know, I think some of the reforms as they affect folks, I means sure, there might be 2,600 people who will be affected by the retroactivity of the crack powder cocaine differential, but that's not, that's not insubstantial for 2,600 members of the community and their families. And, and it's then, certainly symbolic. And it's and certainly it's, impo- important as a right. symbolic piece about the, the, the different that was once 100 to 1, and then it was 17 to 1, and now it's parity and it's retroactive. Really important to show that we can make a difference on criminal justice reform. Let's turn the conversation uh, to the states. A little over 2 million people are incarcerated nationwide. 
about 87% of them are in the state system. Yeah. So the game clearly, in terms of numbers, is in the states. Got to be in the states. The, federal, the feds set the tone, but the states have to do the work. Talk a bit about how you have collaborated at the state level and some of your more significant victories. Some of the successes recently in Texas, I mean, obviously, in terms of the overall picture, Texas now has uh, 143,000 people in prison, which is the same number as in 1993. So when you consider we have 10 million more people in the general population, it's a drop of about a third. So um, that's... Uh, encouraging. And we've also worked on a number of other issues. So this session, for example, in Texas, as part of this coalition work, we were able to get rid of the driver responsibility program, uh, where now 1.4 million people starting September 1st will get their driver's licenses back and not be at risk of going to jail because they're driving with a suspended license. These are people that could not afford to pay a fine or a fee and therefore had uh, their license uh, suspended. So it is um, that that's the type of thing. And then, you know, a lot of other states were, were partnering on as well. I mean, Louisiana just a couple years ago passed a major justice reinvestment package. And of course, that actually enabled Louisiana to fall out of the spot as being the number one incarcerator, which is now taken over by Oklahoma. Mark, why do you think you've had so much success bringing Republicans on board to an issue that historically has been perceived to be left of center? You know, it's always sort of Uh, The traditional discourse about criminal justice has always been that it's about disproportionate impacts on minority communities, disproportionate impacts on the poor, unfairness, procedural unfairness within the criminal justice system itself. But you and Right on Crime and your colleagues have been able to really turn this conversation and broaden the tent of support for a lot of these initiatives. Well, and I think think those things you mentioned are important, but, you know, it's also important to say you know, we should have limited government and we should not restrict people's liberty any more than necessary to protect public safety. Uh, really, government set up to protect one person from harming another person. And uh, a lot of, unfortunately, what we've done in the criminal justice system, we've violated the Hippocratic Oath, which says first do no harm. We've, yeah. we've, we've, the way we've punished people has actually made their problems worse and made them more of a danger. So anytime you can tell someone this government program is actually counterproductive, they want to listen. And, you know, the trusted messengers uh, helps as well. When we started Right on Crime with the Statement of Principles, we had Newt Gingrich, Grover Norquist, uh, Ed Meese, who was attorney Meese, general under yeah. Reagan. No one could say Ed Meese is soft uh, on yeah. crime. But I do think that, that increasingly conservatives and, and care about a whole host of other uh, reasons to support this as well, which is, you know, there's a shortage of labor. We need people working, not being dependent on government, which is what you are when you're incarcerated. And then we haven't even touched on the redemption aspect. I mean, for every major religion, that's an incredible motivator. And so that's been a huge source of of, uh, our appeal to many uh, social conservatives. And they were early trailblazers on this issue. I mean, your organization, your program has been an establishment for what now? About how long? 12 years? Oh, I just started in 2005. So, yeah, 14 About years. 14 years. Oh. And that was early trailblazing work. And then as others joined, including the Koch brothers, with whom I don't always coincide, but their leadership is also critically important. So leadership, I think, was critical. I think the second thing I would, if I could add another answer to your question, is like, how is this happening and why now with conservatives? I think people are hungry for examples of government working. I think good people, no matter what their party background, Democrat or Republican, progressive or conservative, want to see government work. And when you can show momentum of when government officials can actually come together 
across the political spectrum, get things done that they can agree upon. I think that really hits a sweet spot that people are really hungry for at the time. It's like, show us how government works. Even though both of you are clearly enthusiastic, passionate about criminal justice reform, there are some areas where even within the space you disagree. Let's talk about a few of those, and let's talk about one area that... um, Apologies, Anthony, is near and dear to my heart. Sure, of course. uh, But where it's one of the few areas where Anthony and I disagree. uh, Respectfully. Respectfully disagree. And that is the area of risk assessment. Risk assessment tools, Yes. So let's uh, let's go there. And and let's just sort of level set again. Uh, When I I mention risk assessments specifically, I am talking about a a criminal justice reform measure that would would seek to assess risk pretrial. When somebody is initially arrested, the question is, what happens to that person between the time the person is arrested and the time the person is tried? Unfortunately, and this is this is changing thanks to many many wonderful people who are uh, who are reformers in the space. But in general, what happens in most states is that the person is goes before a judge and is assessed bail. And if the person is able to pay bail, the person can walk. If the person cannot pay bail, the person stays in jail many times for months on end because that person is poor. And often, there, you know, there, there's, of course, a strong correlation between poverty, racial demographics, and um, incarceration. So, so from our perspective, this was something that uh, we spent a lot of time working on, we spent a lot of time thinking about. And um, the issue of risk assessments is an issue that we talk about in that context. What should we do in that moment, in that moment when the person is being arraigned and we're making that determination as to whether or not we should restrict that person's liberty? How do we think about what we balance in terms of public safety, risk of flight? Where does bail come into that discussion and how can we make a more responsible decision? See, and I think where we have completely coincided, the three of us around this table, is on the on the overall goals, right? And ultimately, the, the criminal justice system that you envision, that we all envision, is one where there would be individuals who are released uh, prior their adjudication in the, the vast majority of cases, right? Where we kind of envision a moment when people are not being held for long periods of time before their adjudicative kind of hearing, that you want to make sure you reduce pretrial detention to an absolute utter minimum, that you eliminate wealth-based detention, that you want to make sure that the system is not racially disparate or that there's not systemic bias in the system. And, you know, we think there are other tools that we want to kind of more fully employ before we fully kind of turn to the risk assessment tool. It should not be the one silver bullet. I know we all agree with that. There's got to be the diversion programs. You've got to strengthen due process protections. You've got to expand the right to counsel. You've got to deal with indigent defense. Where we part company with with you, Laura, and your colleagues at Arnold Ventures, who are amazing colleagues, and we've been able to work through many of these issues with real collaboration and really working through the details, is that we still worry about risk assessment tools and these algorithms being inserted into this criminal justice system at this time, because many of the criminal justice, many of the algorithms and tools and risk assessment tools are still black boxes. Um, We don't know how they're determining who gets kind of spit out of an algorithm for release and who gets determined then to, for for remaining. And so we've we've called for greater scrutiny, greater transparency, greater knowledge about the data. Your colleagues have done the best work 
in terms of coming up with risk assessment tools. We are still queasy. We are still no, kind and of, I understand, and that's absolutely understandable. And we're it kind is of a, like we we it are is skeptical. A highly imperfect system. The ACLU that we're is working. born and bred with <laughs> kind of skepticism of government power without an adjudicative human being yeah. in the no, in the yeah, and that's absolutely and understood. You know, it, it obviously just helps inform the judge's decision. And of course, right. I'd also say though. Just historically, judges relying just on their own gut level uh, not yeah. has not worked out too well. So yeah, right. that's, and that's the tension. Yeah. That I think that's the tension that, exactly. that we that we are trying to. Address. I think we're all trying to address. But I think at it's, the moment, you know, at the moment when somebody is before a judge at arraignment, at the most basic level, what we should all be worried about is: is that person going to show up for court, right. and is that person going to harm someone? You know, be a danger to society if we release that person. Clearly, I think we all agree that bail is not a good proxy for answering either one of those questions exactly. in general. Exactly. But then the question is, you know, is human discretion a good uh, a good tool to answer those questions? We've clearly seen that that's not the case. So, what can we do in the in the interim to complement human the, the discretion of a judge who is, you know, in theory a caring person who wants to do the right thing? Can we provide some sort of data so that? the judge can seek to answer those two questions. Your points are absolutely well taken, Anthony, and I think that we think about those things all, all the, the time. time. And I want to mention two quick things, like you know, text messaging, just reminding people of their hearings. Most people right. that miss yes. a hearing, it's not intentional. They couldn't get transportation or child care. And the other thing is, I think we really ought to focus not on you know failure to appear or someone missed one court date, but did they abscond, which means for you know whatever, several months, they you know, refused multiple court dates and didn't show up. And that's actually a very small number of people that truly abscond. And I think the questions and the willingness of Arnold Ventures to kind of ask the questions alongside of its partner, saying, okay, how can we help address your queasiness, your concerns? How can we make sure that the data that's being used in some of these risk assessment tools is as fulsome and as protective of constitutional rights and civil liberties as it can be? What questions are the best ones to ask and which ones ought not be asked in the way that some other uh, risk assessment tools and I, and I think the one thing I will say is that there are many kind of algorithms and tools out there, and there are there are some very good ones, like the ones your folks have developed, and there are some ones that we really just scratch our heads and saying, uh, we no, don't know absolutely. how these work. This, this is and, uncharted territory for, for and, many and of so us. We, so we, we remain queasy because we yeah. would still like to push, push other reforms first before we become overly reliant upon uh, some of these black boxes. But, yeah, absolutely. But, but I, think it's, I think it's a healthy, wonderful debate to have. And I think, you know, the more tools, that we, the more ways that we can be clear about the questions that judges ought to be asking themselves, either in their own brains or through an algorithm. What are the proper kind of factors that they should be kind of considering when they determine who stays in, in detention, waiting adjudication, who gets released? The more fulsome the debate is, I think, oh, the better we'll all be for it. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Now, I know you all, uh, we've covered many of the areas in which you're collaborating within criminal justice. There's not a, not a shortage of areas to collaborate and not a shortage of work, unfortunately, even though I think the, the community, the criminal justice community has, uh, has really accomplished incredible things in the last couple of years. You all, of course, work together on other, in other areas, ranging from human trafficking to free speech to fines and fees, the criminalization of poverty, uh, occupational licensing, and workforce development. So you really have a a, a pretty fulsome portfolio of collaboration between TPPF on one hand and the ACLU, and in fact among your groups and and many others. Is that difficult to talk about with your base? To the extent you believe you have a base, Mark, do you 
Do you worry about an association with the ACLU? We, we Do wear, you have to sort of... <laughs> we wear the sunglasses you know, and the collars up when yes. we meet in hotel bars. Go the bars. back door, yeah. Right, exactly. Right, and sometimes, and I think the same question for you, Anthony. Oh I God. think if, some, anybody, of if some of your diehard ACLU, yeah. hell no, we won't go, oh, I hear from them. protesters when, when, hear that you're hanging out with the Koch brothers. Or Jared Kushner and talking to me right. the West Wing. Yeah. So how do you how do you navigate that? How do you keep your base loyal and happy while at the same time reaching across the aisle to to people who um you know who frankly you know your some of your supporters really strongly dislike? Well, I mean, of course, you obviously we're a nonpartisan, you know, uh, nonprofit organization, so uh, we don't really think about it in kind of our base terms, but we do think about it in terms of maintaining our brand, certainly, and and. You know, as you alluded to, uh, one of the biggest reasons why so many criminal justice reforms have moved forward is that conservative policymakers have come to embrace them. And so, um, you know, it's no secret that, you know, conservative legislators, for, for the most part, they don't agree with a lot of the other things the ACLU advocates besides some of the criminal justice reform uh, priorities. I'm sure there's exceptions. So, but I think so part of it is, you know, we take the approach, first of all, with the coalition, there's a consensus. Every uh, organization, the coalition has to agree to make a particular bill a priority. And then they also, we have frank conversations and say, okay, we need to get this legislator. Well, which among us is the best, is the best to meet yeah. with that person? Maybe it's, sometimes it's not us and it's the Texas Association of Business, or sometimes it is the ACLU. So I think being willing to, to uh, and then as you pointed out earlier, you know, not making the perfect to the enemy of the good. Now we don't want to enact something that's going to be an obstacle to you know, more uh, comprehensive reforms in the future. But certainly for the most part, what we deal with with bills are, especially as they move through the process, sometimes they get watered down. Um, But the, you know, is to say, look, this doesn't um, check off all the boxes that all of us want to accomplish, but it moves the ball forward. And, um, you know, I found that uh, most groups on the left and the right are pragmatic and will say, let's take half a loaf. So that's part of it, too. I think there's a responsibility of leadership. And yes, I have a followership. I got two million members at this point. You know, they're very energetic. They're very frothy. The bulk of them are very anti-Trump. The bulk of them are not Republicans. Well, I mean, you got what was your Trump bump in fundraising? Over over one. Well, in terms of dollars, over, yes, uh, over a hundred and twenty odd million dollars in the first year of Mr. Trump's election mm-hmm. uh, that went to our political arm. So we have him to thank for the golden period of ACLU political activism. I can send him a thank you card when, it's all, <laughs> right. when he's all done. So, Whenever uh, he retires to Mar-a-Lago, so, I'll send so him there a is, So it's fair to say that you know a significant number of your supporters and are, are I, not pleased and then with I your think, meeting with Jared Kushner. And then you just need to kind of lead them through it. I mean, yeah. like, it is our responsibility to engage the federal government. You know, we cannot become so uh, knee-jerk in our opposition to the Trump administration, that when the West Wing calls or the senior advisor to the president calls and says, I want your input on immigration reform, we, we can't just say, oh, talk to the hand. Oh, yeah. And he, and asked, we, he asked me to bring up some conservatives, and he asked Van Jones to bring some liberals, and, and we all came together for and some we important need meetings. To engage, and, we, and you need to have the courage of your convictions to say directly to people that you, uh, that you disagree with. And you need then have the courage of your convictions to talk to your, to your members, to my members, and say, look, you want me to be effective, and you want me to inform the policy debates. And if I can share with them thoughts and in, insights and perspectives, and just by engaging Jared Kushner doesn't mean that I'm going to stop litigating 
against the Trump administration. We need to engage. That's how government works. And I think that's what our that's what our constituents want is they want us to be smart, principled, effective, pragmatic, clear-eyed, you know, idealistic, all those contradictory adjectives all in the same bundle. I think we can only do that if we engage. You know, actually, I I did. I mean, I feel really lucky because I got to go to the White House when President Obama got to sit down with him and ten or twelve other people. And then, obviously, we've had more opportunities to do that in the current administration. Um, but you know, I really think sometimes people don't expect uh, that a particular legislator is going to be the one to to kind of uh, be a leader on a topic, and you don't know what's in their background. You don't know that they might have had a family member who came in right. contact with the justice Every, system. Yeah. So you, you don't make assumptions, and, and, and we've actually found that sometimes it's the most conservative legislator who stands up and says, you know, what we're doing in this aspect of criminal justice is wrong. And it may be because of their religious views. It may be because of a personal experience of a friend or family member. So, um, you know, I think our job is to do the research, show the policies that work, and be willing to talk to any. I mean, we're willing to go into any legislative office. It doesn't matter what side of the spectrum there are and tell them, here's how you can improve the criminal justice system in your jurisdiction. I totally agree. I mean, I think part of what was interesting with the Jared Kushner interaction on the First Step Act is that he did have a personal experience. His father was incarcerated. And when he and I first talked that July afternoon when I was not supporting his bill, I was convinced that he wa- he really did have skin in this game. And he really did have a personal reason that he cared about this issue. We need to move him further than he was willing to go initially. But that's part of the job of advocates. And you're not going to move him by not engaging. So we engage. And when we can't move them, we, we sue them. And we bring the lawsuits to kind of hold their feet uh, feet to the fire, and uh, you know I'm. Well, it takes it it takes all kinds of strategies. It that's takes for sure. The inside and outside, definitely. Uh, what do you think are the best uh, opportunities for bootleggers and Baptists coming up in 2019, 2020? I think criminal justice continues to be one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's one of the few where we have momentum. And there's so much more to do. And people from both sides are claiming it as one of their kind of major legacies. And so I think we, sh- we should double down on the Second Step Act and the Third Step Act and take it to the state legislatures and be much clearer about how we can kind of move criminal justice reform at the state level. I think privacy, you know, to getting mm-hmm. off the farm a little bit on criminal yeah. justice reform, I think privacy rights has huge implications for every American, right or left. And here you have good libertarians and good Republicans. Rand Paul has been very helpful working with us on this issue. We, we don't agree with him and we don't coincide on reproductive rights. That's fine. We fight him on that. But we agree with him on privacy rights. And I think privacy rights and some of the kind of questions around kind of, a, kind of a, the privacy bill of rights for the 21st century is one of the places that we can coincide. What others would you suggest, Oh, I agree Mark? with that. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is like the, 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 the approach that the courts have taken is to say, do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? But now you almost never do because it's become everybody, you know, getting stuff from your phone if you don't change the privacy setting. Now, I mean, in government, obviously, is, you know, the Constitution's there to protect us against government. And so our perspective is really one of property rights. It's your phone. It's your home. And there ought to be a warrant before, you know, that can be searched. 
uh, occupational licensing was one you mentioned, Laura, earlier. Yeah. Actually, the governor Critical of Colorado, part. who's yeah. a liberal Democrat, vetoed uh, some really uh, bad bills that would have expanded occupational licensing in Colorado. And of course, there's been a huge move on the right to recognize this is driving up costs for consumers. It's depriving people of their ability to earn a living. And of course, we kind of got into it because of the denial of licenses to people with a criminal record. Exactly. Uh, that's unrelated to the duties of occupation. We passed a bill in Texas that says this session that has to stop. Right. Um, but the broader the broader issue is that if you want to be anything from a cosmetologist to a hairdresser to, you know, any number of jobs, you have to pay a bunch of money to get, quote unquote, educated by the state and get a license uh, that arguably doesn't necessarily serve the purpose. And it's just a barrier to somebody pursuing economic opportunity. Right. Exactly. And typically you have these vested interests, these organizations lobbying right, to keep schools, other people out. Unquote, right. right. So, I mean, just a quick anecdote. I was at a hearing several sessions ago in Texas, and this was a group of mechanics that were trying to get auto mechanics licensed, and they wanted to do a written test. This was going to be in order to be a mechanic. And that didn't sound right. You know, I know how to yeah. fix a car. I'm like, oh, it's only going to be in English. So every person who just speaks Spanish can't yeah. be a mechanic anymore. Um, and so thankfully it didn't go through. But that's the kind of thing it's to uh, try to reduce competition is really the motive behind most of this rather than actually protecting the public. Even going back to the tech industry for a bit, we, we, we had we had a kind of a brush uh, with Airbnb um, in one of their in one of uh, our first cases with them where they wanted to summarily exclude people with criminal records from their platform. And we had to threaten a suit to engage them on what are the proper ways you ask that question, uh, where people either renting in an Airbnb or, or, or as a consumer in an Airbnb, what are the right ways for you to kind of adjudicate safety issues in a platform? Well, since we're here in New York, I hope maybe you, you, I will come aboard, too, on not banning uh, 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 Airbnb and well, those things, too, because yeah. that's another thing. But yes. Yeah, well, there's not, there, there's not a shortage of issues yes, to, uh, yes, to, yes. to work on and nuances to all those issues. It's been great having both of you. It's on been Deep great. Dive. And it's I, been great. As, as a Baptist always, or bootlegger, we, I'm glad right. to be in good company with well, you and with yes, Marco. Yes, and I always enjoy our <laughs> conversations, and I applaud you both for your terrific work in criminal justice. According to a recent survey from Pew, the partisan gap between Democrats and Republicans in America is wider today than it's been at any point in the past 25 years. In fact, the survey found that the average Republican is more conservative than 97% of Democrats. And the number is almost identical when you flip it, with 95% of Democrats more liberal than the average Republican. And we've all seen where this polarization can lead. It stalls the political process. It creates social friction. And it tears down our lines of communication. Yet criminal justice reform has offered a ray of hope that we're still capable of coming together to push forward sensible solutions. Given the myriad critical issues that our country faces, from health care to climate, social justice, immigration, public finance, the list goes on. Let's hope that criminal justice is not the exception. You've been listening to Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, produced by the Arnold Ventures Philanthropy. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, visit arnoldventures.org. By maximizing opportunity and minimizing injustice, we make change for the greater good. Again, that website is arnoldventures.org. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you again next time on Deep Dive.